welcome to the Wibbly Wobbly Timey Wimey Podcast. I'm Lucia Kelly, expert at applied analysis, and I bring the charm. And I'm Talia Franks, media critic, fanfic enthusiast, and broadly benevolent voice of reason. And we're here today with a Wibbly Wobbly Minisode. Today we'll be talking about Doctor Who Redacted, because Ella Watts is here. Hello! I see what you did there, by the way. I enjoyed that Shauna reference. That was excellent. That made me very, very happy. Oh my gosh. This is already a good start. Hi, I'm Ella. My pronouns are she, her. I am the director and producer of Dr. Who Redacted. Nice to meet you. (laughs) Yeah, nice to meet you too. Reminder that time isn't a straight line. It can twist into any shape. And as such, this is a fully spoiled podcast. We might bring things in from later in the show, the comics, the books, the audio dramas, BBC press releases, podcasts, or even fan theories and articles. With that out of the way, sometimes you have to step up and do the weird, scary, impossible thing because someone has to. So let's get in the TARDIS. So, Ella, you already introduced yourself a little bit, but do you want to describe a bit more about your background, how you got involved with Doctor Who, past projects that led you to Doctor Who Redacted? Yeah, for sure. Also, I have to say the weird, scary, impossible thing, I wrote that. So I'm like very like, I'm like fully like, oh my gosh, that just made me so happy. Yeah. Okay. So I am a podcast and radio producer and director. I worked at BBC Studios for a few years, which Doctor Who fans will know is the production company that has been making Doctor Who for the last few years. It is affiliated with the BBC, but not part of the BBC, which is a weird, very technical difference that not a lot of people get, but essentially it's a private production company. In that company, I was part of their audio team, which used to be the radio comedy team, which used to be the light entertainment department in-house at the BBC. So my department historically made things like The Mighty Boosh and Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, and more recently makes a lot of radio comedy for BBC Radio 4 here in the UK. I was also a consultant for BBC Sounds, which is the app that the BBC makes on specifically audio drama, because my other hat is that I'm an international audio fiction expert and community coordinator. I wrote a 10-year overview of the English language audio fiction industry back in 2018, which was published by the BBC, and I'm generally an advocate for indie drama podcasts and the people who make them. Yeah, no, it's really weird because I first knew you as a director for Zombies Run. (laughs) That was my first introduction to you. And I've been using it for years now. I'm pretty sure that I was one of the, like, I got into it in like 2014, 2015 when it just started. And like, it got me fit. It still keeps me relatively fit. (laughs) That's incredible. But it was such a cool innovative idea I do a bunch of free marketing for you guys because I love it so much but like the way I often introduce it to people is it's an interactive radio play like you do exercise and you get story it's great and yeah I've been loving it from jump so thank you oh I'm so glad to hear that can I also say a genuinely lovely thing is that everyone behind the scenes at Zombies Run is just incredibly nice it's a really good company the people at Zombies Run are like a really good company they treat workers really well they care a lot about workers rights and it's really neat like yeah whenever I get a new script I'm like oh I know that this is going to be good because it's being curated by this team and that means that I can just relax and do my job which is really cool but yeah no check out Zombies Run I'm a voice director at Zombies Run it's wonderful I mean it's already been introduced but yeah it's an app you can download for free there are subscription options but you literally never have to use them you can use it for years I used it for years before I started working for Zombies Run just for free and now because I work there I get a little discount and I'm like ha 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 now I get all of this extra content but yeah in terms of how I got involved with Doctor Who the Doctor Who brand wanted a podcast they wanted something specifically to cater to women under 35 and working class people because they felt that those communities were underserved by their existing body of media So they Mm -hmm. felt like there were some communities that they were serving really well with extended media properties, but there were others like audiences who were being left out. So they were like, we want a podcast, but it has to be specifically for women under 35 and working class communities. And what actually happened was I was brought into a meeting room and no one told me 
that it was the Doctor Who pitch meeting. And as people are introducing themselves, they're explaining like what we can and can't do with the podcast and who everyone is. And I'm just writing down, like making up ideas for an official Doctor Who podcast, like in the five minutes before someone asks me to speak once everyone's introducing themselves. And I pitched a couple of different ideas, but the one that they liked was basically BuzzFeed Unsolved, but Doctor Who which I just thought would be really funny. And then for six months, I had this kind of two-page document that I shopped around a bunch of internal places at the BBC. And I had a screenshot of Ryan and Shane from BuzzFeed Unsolved. And I was like, this is what would be good. This was back in 2019. And then eventually people took me seriously enough to give me some money for a pilot. And I went and approached Juno. And then she actually came up with, I don't know, characters and a story and something more than just the general <laughs> premise of what if a paranormal podcast would do. And we recorded the pilot. And then a bunch of stuff happened, including but not limited to a global pandemic, Chris Chibnall leaving Doctor Who, Russell T Davies coming back to Doctor Who. And with all of these kind of both big changes in the world full stop, but also big changes in the world of Doctor Who, Redacted just didn't really have a place to go because it was like, oh, well, is Russell's era going to want it? Does Chris want it? Like, when does it come out? Does it come out at the end of Chris's era? Does it come out earlier? Does it wait until Russell's era starts? We didn't really know. And we didn't know if Russell would want it to exist at all. So it was like, where is it going to fit in? And then in January this year, BBC Sounds confirmed that they did want to pay for it and they did want it to be made. And then I had two weeks to cast the entire thing, and <laughs> yeah, which was brutal. And then two weeks to record the entire thing. And then three months to produce the entire thing, which in the world of audio drama is a very short production timeline. I would normally take six months, even for an indie project. But now here we are and it's been released. And the last episode comes out this Sunday when we're recording, but I don't know when this episode comes out. So maybe, I mean, time is not a straight line. Wibbly wobbly timey wibbly. That is wild to me that you had such a short timeline. It's really, really great though. This is honestly probably one of my favorite podcasts. Also, I mean, I've been a big Doctor Who fan for forever. It's so unlike a lot of Doctor Who, but it's also exactly like Doctor Who. It is Doctor Who. It's exactly what I've come to love from the series, but it's also so much more. And it's just fantastic. Every week I listen to it and I'm like, this is amazing. Like every week I'm like, oh, this is the best episode because each episode just feels better and better. Yeah, it's fascinating hearing you say that specifically the goal was to appeal to women under 35 and working class because listening to Redacted, like Talia says, it's this weird, bizarre feeling of being catered to. And it's like, wait, hang on. Is this what it... I can understand how white men get so power mad. This feels great. Like, Yeah. <laughs> And it feels like Doctor Who, but made with people like us in mind instead of the default, which is really fun. Yeah, it's honestly so great to feel really seen by the show. And I am very much looking forward to and hoping, well, one, hoping that there's going to be more, either more of Redacted itself or more audio dramas in this style of podcast. Because one of the things too is that Big Finish is great, but it's also not very accessible. So I love how really accessible this is. It's free. We can listen to it right in the app or even just online. And also there's transcripts. Oh my goodness. I love transcripts so much. They make my life so much easier. That's one of the reasons we have transcripts for this podcast because Honestly, the fact that so many podcasts don't have transcripts drives me bananas, honestly. But the point I was trying to get to is I really like how accessible this medium is. And I really hope to see more of, if not this specific podcast, then more in this style. And I also want to see more of these characters and characters like them in the show itself. I really love how it includes so many explicitly queer characters. It includes working class characters. I really want to see that in main Doctor Who. And I'm really excited, especially like with this is the 60th and the inclusion of Yasmin Finney and finally getting to have more trans characters in the show. And I feel like Redacted is really pioneering that. And I really love that. Now we're just gushing because we love this show so much. <laughs> yeah. 
No, it was so heartwarming and just gave me such hope. First of all, you fall in love with Cleo instantly. Like, <laughs> she's such a great character. Absolutely. But also the fact that the entire show revolves around the fact that Cleo is undisputably the hero. It's placing working class trans women at the centre and putting a spotlight on them and pushing them up and praising them and giving them the time that has been so long denied. And it's just really heartwarming to listen to and know that even though it's happening slower than it should, wheels are moving and it's moving in the right direction. Absolutely. I'm really, really, really glad to hear you both say that. It, it means a lot. And obviously this was a big part of the reason for doing it. I also want to say on transcripts, I agree. I would love to see more podcasts using transcripts. And I think it's important just to shout out Caroline Minx, who does a lot of activism in the at least audio drama and audio fiction space about providing transcripts. Cara is deaf and does a lot of deaf activism around how you can make transcripts more accessible and more interesting. The BBC doesn't usually provide transcripts for podcasts. And so having transcripts at all was a little bit of a fight that I had to do. And I'm glad that we got them. But also I have this thing we were talking before we started recording about how you feel your work changes over time. And even now as a producer, I'm looking at stuff and I'm like, ah, I would change that. They would do that differently. And I wish this was better. And ah, God damn it. But yeah, like there's, there's a lot that I would change about our transcripts just to make them better. But I'm glad that we got them at all. And I hope that they have been helpful for people. I started off writing them, but then another producer called Georgia Keating took over for me. I just really appreciate the fact that like, I, <laughs> I was so strict. Georgia mostly produces radio programs for like national radio, right? Like she's quite a busy person. She's quite an ambitious person. She's a really good creative producer. She came into this from producing TV comedy. She's this incredible woman. And then I'm being like, okay, but you have to do the transcript right. And I need you to know that like, it won't be good enough if it's just the script. And also you need to make sure that you do this right. And if you think that there's an emotion here that's not clear in the script, then you do need to add it. And like, also just, you need to make sure that you change the sound effects. And also I need you to describe the music. I gave her like such a detailed set of instructions for this thing that she was doing for me as a favor in her free time around producing national radio. But she's this amazing woman who puts so much care and attention to it and, and emails me each week being like, okay, so this is what I did here. And this is like what I hope people find it useful and stuff. And I don't know, I just I feel like shout out to Georgia because she hasn't really got credit for it because we're just in the same company and that's not often how it works. But I, I do think if people have appreciated the transcripts, Georgia Keating is the reason we have them. And she's really cool. And she's also a woman who's a comedy producer and a drama producer who's interested in making queer feminist intersectional stuff. So yeah, just shout out to Georgia. Yeah, thank you, Georgia. Because I really love the transcripts and I love how detailed they are. And I can only aspire for at some point our transcripts to be that good. <laughs> we're still learning. Like we were just saying before we started recording that we are still, like we only just had our one year anniversary. We're still a very new podcast and we're still learning how to do this whole podcasting thing. So we're definitely new. That was another thing that I think for you and I, Talia, specifically was so joy giving about Redacted specifically is that you know, we're amateur podcasters listening to amateur podcasters and all the little sort of details and in jokes and just it's a very knowing and loving wink to people who produce their own stuff and it's just really joy giving be like oh yeah I know that <laughs> we've been in those kinds of meetings yeah redacted definitely feels like a bit of a love letter to fandom in the way that it talks about how there are everyday people who pay attention to what the doctor is doing and are picking up the pieces and noticing and following trails and clues and creating podcasts. It's such a great expression of seeing how fandom works and how it's really evolved too, because we got to see in the show, like we had Linda and we had Clive and all that in the early show and now we're seeing it as a podcast and how it's evolved into the modern era. We are wondering if you could tell us a bit about what might the average person not know about what goes into making a production like Redacted and what is a day in the life of making the show like at each stage? Okay, 
gosh, it's really, really hard to like assume knowledge or lack of knowledge. So to you, the person listening, I apologize if you know this stuff already. I'm just going to cover as many bases as possible, just in case there's a thing you didn't know, you didn't know. In the words of Cecil Baldwin, we fear what we don't know. We fear what we don't yet know. We don't know. Um, okay, so obviously there's a couple of things. So first of all, we shape the story. So that started at a couple of points for us because we had an unusually long development period before actually making the show. Normally, when you pitch a new podcast or radio show, you have like maximum about a year before you actually start producing it. We obviously move a lot faster than TV and film because our budgets are normally a lot lower. Our teams are smaller. And even if you're making something on a theoretically large stage, it's not a box office thing. And so normally you'd have a year of development time and then you make your thing. And that's going to be three to six months, depending on what it is. Might take up to a year if it's like really massive, but that's going to be something that's over 20 episodes. And that's quite unlikely in the world of commercial drama, just because indie drama can kind of, do a Magnus Archives and make 200 episodes because not everyone's being paid and certainly not at the start. Whereas with commercial drama, you know, I have a responsibility to pay people union rates and I'm just not given enough money to pay people to make 50 episodes of anything. I don't have that much money in my budget. I've seen people being like, oh, I wish there was more of the Doctor in the show. I do too. We did not have the budget to pay Jodie Whittaker to be the Doctor for three hours. Like, that's just not a thing that we can do. Um, And she was lovely and we got her for two hours and that was the entirety of the recording session we got for her and it took up a substantial portion of our budget but yeah so we were in development for quite a long time but normally the way you shape things is like in the way we did it was like I said I came up with the general premise of being like I know who the audience is I know what the story is that I want to tell I want to tell a story about the people left of camera in Doctor Who so the people who when the camera pans around and you see everyone panicking with Santos in a shopping mall I want to talk about the people who are running away who we never go back to but whose lives have been irrevocably changed by this weird thing that happened to them often very traumatizing thing that happened to them and then I approached Juno to be our lead writer and because she was our lead writer I was like okay so what do you want to do like these are the things that I want to do this is the audience I want to appeal to these the parts of the story that are really important to me so I talked a lot about like for me I think that a trope that science fiction and fantasy often falls into is making fantasy privilege and that's partly because a lot of the people behind the scenes both in production and commissioning just because of the way the world is are often white cis straight middle class often men so they relate to stories about privilege more than they do about stories about marginalization. And so they're like, oh, well, I assume this is very relatable. And it's like, it's not. Like, there is a very small minority of people in the world who are white, cishet, rich men. Like, it's a tiny, tiny group of people. But there's an assumption that everyone will relate to that. So what you often get in science fiction and fantasy is a character who is nominally working class, is nominally marginalized, but then they're secretly an alien prince, or they're secretly a super genius, or they secretly have access to an incredibly expensive supercomputer. Spider-Man now has access to billionaire equipment and that immediately undermines it because if you're a normal person who's ever had to like work for a living or like your parents have been working whilst you're growing up or you feel like you didn't just walk into a job you didn't just get into uni and it was super easy you didn't just have a friend who told a friend that you were good at something then it's really alienating because it's like actually my life isn't like that I didn't one day find out I was an alien prince and then everyone wanted to give things to me I have to make rent and I worry about that every month that's a thing that is in my life and so when I was talking to Juno I was like so I want to tell Doctor Who's story, but I don't want us to do this fantasy privilege thing. I want these people to be normal human beings. There's nothing special about them. They're not aliens. They're not magical. They don't secretly have access to robots or whatever. They are just people, real people. And I had approached Juno because I'd obviously done research into a bunch of different writers before approaching Juno, but I'd read her novel, The Good Doctor, which was the first piece of fiction that had the 13th Doctor in it, which is a novelization. And I'd listened to her Torchwood Big Finish audio dramas. And I also was aware of her just as an activist and also her other young adult writing. And I was like, if I want to make something that appeals to young women, it's hard to think of a better choice than Juno Dawson, than someone who appeals to young women, but also knows Doctor Who like the back of her hand and really cares about Doctor Who. So I approached her and I was like, hey, these are the themes and things that I want to deal with. And she started coming up with the characters. She started coming up with like Cleo, Shauna and Abby. We had that coffee and then we had a writer's room with Catherine Brinkworth and Sasha Siena, who were two of the writers in our writer's room in the series, who write episode four and episode five. And I just booked a meeting room for, I can't remember if it was two or four hours, but I had a whiteboard and we just plotted out the series. And we're like, these are who the characters are. This is roughly what their deal is. This is what the plot is going to be. These are the things that are exciting to us. How does that fit our themes? What themes are important to us? What do we want to say with the story? Why are we telling the story now? 
Then from there, we kind of shaped it into a pilot. Juno wrote a script. I edited it. So in audio, a producer has a lot more hats than they do in visual media. So I am like script editor and I am producer and I do some marketing stuff and I'm the director and I do like lots of different things. So we go through it. But I will say with Juno's script, one of the really amazing things about getting to work with her is that she is so hardworking and she has so much love for Redacted and Doctor Who that with the other writers, I would kind of script edit their stuff. With Juno, it would just be like, Juno, here's my notes. And she would go do it and she would bring a script back to me. Then we get to actual production. So I have an executive producer who is called James Robinson and he's quite an experienced drama producer. So it's his job to be like, hey, Ella, I know you really want to do this thing, but that's not going to work in audio. And I'm like, but are you sure, James? And he's like, yes. And I'm like, okay. Fine. And so make like little tweaks based on what James has said. Then we get into actually lots and lots and lots of development of the scripts, big writer's room with everyone to discuss the overall plot, to decide which episode who's doing and where they're picking up from and where they're handing over to in terms of our overall storyline, hammering out that plot and refining it. Like this, I'm trying to condense like a two years worth of work, but like lots of stuff like that. And then from there, working on the scripts like internally. So we take the scripts away from the writers, do them a little bit further based on notes from Doctor Who brand, because we're working with an existing franchise. We have to make sure that stuff is in line with canon and that people are being referred to correctly and stuff like that. Then we get to actually casting, getting people to audition, reviewing people's existing work. Because we had an extremely short timeline, like I said, two weeks to cast the entire series, rather than the kind of formal auditioning process that you would get again in something like a film or TV. Essentially, like what happens a lot of the time is an audio producer is like, I mean, part of my job as being a producer is being aware of who's an interesting actor, who's an interesting writer, who are people I want to work with. And part of my ethical responsibility is to find people who might not already be very well known. So to make a conscious effort to be like, I'm going to attend showcase nights of new talent who are actors or writers and stuff. But that means that I do have a database of writers and actors that I want to work with who I'm like, okay, I know this person is doing something interesting. So I want to ask them if they'd be interested in this project. So I reviewed a lot a lot of material for everyone who we might consider approaching for Redacted and then had a conversation with them and we ended up settling on the cast that we have. And then for recording, we recorded at a studio called Sonica Studios in Clapham in London, which is an amazing radio drama recording studio. They also do all kinds of audio recording for animation and for video games and stuff like that. And what's really cool about them is that they're very COVID safe, which we're recording in February 22. And so we were still concerned about COVID. I mean, I'm still concerned about COVID, but like that, that was like a, a definitely more of a dangerous time. And so we had separate rooms in the building. So each of our actors recorded in their own room where they could shut the door and they could be in an isolated, safer space. And then they had a, a screen in front of them and they essentially had like a Zoom call within the building. So they could see each other and they can hear each other on their headphones, but they're in separate rooms. And then when we break, we will go outside. And then from there, obviously, it's the process of directing. So we're going to record these scenes from these episodes in this order at this time, keeping an eye on the schedule. And there's some level of work that goes into deciding what order we record scenes in. So for me, I had a couple of things to work with, which was that Charlie hasn't acted before. And also that Charlie, Lois and Holly had never met each other before and I needed them to sound like best friends. And so I organized the schedule so it wasn't always linear. We don't start episode one, scene one. I'm like, okay, well, I want the blue box files to be at the end of the first week. So by that point, Charlie and Holly and Lois have got to know each other. So they sound like they're actually friends and actually making each other laugh because they have spoken to each other. Whereas if we started with that, I think it would have sounded very stiff. And similarly, we start off with the exposition heavy, early season stuff because I'm like it doesn't matter if there isn't lots of emotional depth in that because really we're just conveying a little bit of plot information and it's an interstitial piece where it's not doing too much heavy lifting in the drama so we can start off with that to let Charlie warm up into like she's acting now and then when we get to the kind of heavier more emotionally complex pieces like I put them into the second week because I'm like okay these are the moments where she's going to need to feel a little bit more confident in her own performance and be a little bit more in touch with the character and who she is and what her journey is and so if she spent a week getting to know this person that she's playing then she can tap into that a little bit more so record direct also a thing that we do in audio drama that people uh, may or may not know I shared a video of this on Twitter is we record uh, a lot of like crowd scenes and what we call wild tracks so with every single actor that I got in I made them be a ghost for the ghost scene I just made 
made them heavily breathe on mic for like 60 seconds. Everyone did a slightly different version of that. It was very fun. For every crowd scene, every restaurant, every street and stuff, we had people just having a one-sided conversation with themselves. So there's no point where we're just using like a random crowd noise. Those crowds are made up of all of our actors putting on different voices and stuff, including me. People would come up with like ridiculous nonsense and we'd be like, okay, so I need you to now be having a conversation as if you're in a cafe. I need you to now be having a louder conversation as if you're in St. James's Park. We'd get them to be police officers in episode eight. Uh, So, you know, I need you to get out of a car, be confronted by a mob of static ghosts, think that you're there to save two women who say that they think they're about to be murdered and then get painfully dissolved by living static was a fun direction to give people. Just generally having people be screaming. (laughs) And then finally the video that I shared on Twitter, which was like, you're in a post-apocalyptic crowd, but you know, I needed about three minutes of audio. So I like, I needed them all to have a little story. So I'm like, okay, so I need you to start off like quite quiet. Like you're talking to friends, you may be calling someone, you're with like a family member you're with a partner you're with a kid and then oh no like a car just crashed and now that the shop is on fire and now there's ghosts and there's static ghosts and there's army soldiers and ah and then also in episode nine we've got unit soldiers coming in so then the last thing I would get everyone to do is be like, okay, so now you're a unit soldier. So where before you were playing the crowd that was panicking, now I need you to be the soldier coming in being like, don't worry, ma'am, it's okay. Like I'm here to help kind of thing. And like, just generally like giving each other instructions. And with the unit soldiers, I had everyone finish their bit of recording by being like, okay, so either you yourself are painfully killed by living static or you watch someone next to you get painfully killed by living static. So you need to perform for me either screaming pain or screaming fear, but I just need that at the end get all of those things together which is yeah such nonsense such nonsense and I tell you what it's a shame that you can't actually hear the conversations that they're all having because a lot of them took it as an opportunity to just essentially do two minute comedy bit where they would just like make up this ridiculous conversation about (laughs) some things and me and Juno are just like sitting there laughing our asses off as they're just saying absolute nonsense but yeah and then the last thing that's important for me to record an audio drama is just people existing so for especially Holly Lois and Charlie who play Cleo, Abby and Shauna like I need them to breathe breathing is a very cliched thing in radio drama it can be very overused but at the same time we also don't want it to feel like someone's just appeared out of nothing and if you don't have them as a physical human being existing in the room before they start speaking then it's often like a bit confusing of oh where did they come from like how did they just appear and so having non-verbal sounds of them just existing means that you can feel a little bit more like their presence is there so starting out with just like normal breathing and then being like okay now I need sad or scared breathing because something's happening and then being like okay now I need you screaming or running or like we need sounds of you running and making an effort climbing over a wall as you run out of your flat kind of stuff and some of that they would record in the scene but then we also would get a clean take of those sounds outside of the scene so that we could put them in so for example there's a scene in episode six where Cleo finds her dad's stuff and she smells the gloves but that deep breath in was a deep breath in that Charlie did in a separate track that we added to that so it sounded like you know it's all like going there and you can like hear that and feel that Um, but that's the way that we kind of put these things together and then once we've recorded I as the producer and James as the exec do a dialogue cut so we pick our preferred takes of each of the scenes. I put together little things like those nonverbal sounds and I basically put all of the audio of all of the actors into an episode in the order that it's supposed to be. Sometimes I might script edit in that dialogue cut. So I might cut a line or change a line if I feel like it's not working. And then I send it off to a sound designer who does notes. In our case in Redacted, we had two different sound designers. So we had a very cool queer trans producer called Ali Adlington who made a lot of the like signature sounds of the series. So the redaction, the distortion, that kind of staticky hissy, the singing kind of sound. And the ghosts were made by Ali, like the scene with Cleo's mom was Ali. And then we've got David Thomas, who's a very experienced Radio 4 kind of producer. And he would build the broader world of there's traffic and they're running downstairs now and a door is opening and stuff like that. And so we hand it off to them then give them notes. Each of the redacted episodes had four to six rounds of notes, which is quite a lot, but it's because I'm a control freak. And then once we're happy with it, we send it off to our commissioners at BBC Sounds, but also to the Doctor Who team to make sure that sounds are correct. So for example, we're talking to the Doctor Who team and they're being like, well, the sonic mascara in this episode needs to be slightly different. So it's in line with sonic devices. I also remember having a note on that early on in the scripting where like, it agitates molecules with sonic vibrations to the point of volatility or something because someone at Doctor Who was like you have to have Joel explain how it works and I was like I 
have a degree in medieval history and I am just gonna make up how this works and that's fine so anyway and now I got to write how a sonic device works it's definitely makes sense I promise <laughs> um <laughs> the, the egg in science class thing where Cleo like says in that episode oh yeah we exploded an egg in science class that was me going I remember when we exploded an egg in science class I'm sure I can just apply this to sonic <laughs> devices that'll be that'll work we, we we always get into an argument on this podcast about uh, how I think the sonic screwdriver is a magic wand and Lisha doesn't believe in magic. <laughs> I don't believe in magic within the Doctor Who universe specifically. Mm. It, I understand that it's a sci-fi fantasy world, but it's shopped as a sci-fi show. So you need to make the science make sense. This is, I believe, a small and reasonable request, but it does make me feel easier in my heart because Talia and I share without Editor D as well. We all edit the show together and I feel like I'm notorious for being very very particular about how the episode sounds and getting really anal about it including my breathing which I am so so paranoid about (laughs) I have definitely gone in with a fine tooth comb and just muted my breathing every single time so the fact that that's actually (laughs) deliberately put in in audio drama makes me feel a lot better but it's so amazing to hear please continue it's so amazing to get this in-depth detail and really thank you. I'm glad, but but yeah, I mean, so once we got the sound design notes, we handed it off to a commissioner, get approval from the Doctor Who brand. I got sent the TARDIS sound files. Well, it's kind of a spoiler, but I got sent the TARDIS sound files and the fact that I have the stems of how to make the TARDIS sound on my computer, that the official TARDIS sound, I was like, I don't think that I'm allowed to have this legally. I feel like I need to get permission <laughs> from someone. Like I also got, this is, this is a bit of a tease, but I did, I do also have audio stripped from the TV show from an earlier season that we use in episode 10 for reasons. And I went through this whole folder of this audio that I had from various episodes, picking which clip we were going to use. And that also felt very, I was like, I watched this TV show when I was growing up and now I have the audio file from the recording of that TV show and I'm picking a clip to use and yeah, wild. Oh, wow. That sounds like kid in a candy store kind of thing. (laughs) No, I swear to goodness, me and David Devereaux, who composed our theme tune, we're quite close friends. Also, they're like a massive Whovian, massive Whovian. And so I quite often will just be like texting them being like, you're not going to believe what I just got. And I'll like record a little bit of the audio on my phone on a voice note of what I've got. And they're like, what? And I'm like, I know. Um, <laughs> but yeah. And then we release it. And then I don't really have much to do with the marketing or visual assets and stuff. That's handled by BBC Sounds, but I can input a little bit. So our art had its own background fiasco that I'm not sure I can talk about that much, but we ended up just getting a friend of mine called Zach who is a lovely by man to make us the graphic that we have with the assets that we had in like kind of an emergency. And he was teaching at Bournemouth University. So he was in a classroom at work making the art for Redacted just for us because we needed it really, really fast, like in day turnaround. And he's just like texting me being like, is this okay? And I'm like, yeah. But yeah, like BBC Sounds actually handles that side of things. And then obviously the transcript. So when an episode is finished, we do the transcript because Obviously we move sound design and music around. And so it might be that we've changed something from the script or we've added things that were in the script and we changed the dialogue. And so the transcript gets written after the episode has been delivered and approved. And then we actually upload them on Mondays or Tuesdays, but we don't let you see them until Sunday. So I've heard the final version of each episode at the start of each week. I listened to episode 10 on Monday. So it's all finished now and I know what it's going to sound like. And then we share those previews with press reviewers. So there's a couple of reviewers out there who've also now heard episode 10 who will be able to post something on Sunday. And then, yeah, and then the episode goes out and then I'm slightly unprofessional on Twitter because I'm a nerd and I'm excited about there being Whovians who are listening to our show. So that's not part of my job, though. That's just a thing I do because I'm me. And we love it. Like, it's been... Because that's the other thing, of course, is that there's been such an influx of people interacting and making art and doing podcasts and all this sort of stuff in response to this show and I guess were you expecting that kind of fan response or was there anything that really prepared you for it or I don't know what's it been like I oh my gosh okay so when I was 
14 years old, I wrote my first 150,000 word Doctor Who fan fiction. And <laughs> when I was 15 years old, I wrote the sequel to that, which was another 150,000 word Doctor Who fan fiction. And that was the first time that anyone did fan art of my writing was someone did Doctor Who fan art of my Doctor Who fan fiction. And then, yeah, like 15 years later, I wrote a script for the Doctor and then directed and recorded the Doctor being the Doctor in an episode that I produced of her being the Doctor. That was wild. So I am a Doctor Who fan and we were trying to encourage people who hadn't watched Doctor Who before to check this out. And so we're trying to not make it exclusively for people who have very deep knowledge of Doctor Who. I want it to be accessible to people who don't. But there's mm -hmm. a lot of references to Doctor Who fans and to the experience of being a fan that I wanted to include because I wanted this to be a bit of a love letter to Doctor Who fans and specifically to people in the fan community who are like me so like women and queer people and raging anarchist lefties and people who <laughs> love the things about the show that I love and so I, I put so much time and care into this I'm 28 years old it took me three years to make this that's a significant percentage of my life and it went through so many changes and it had to be approved by so many people and before the first episode came out I was terrified like I was like I've seen how the Doctor Who fandom can react to stuff and it's not always pretty mm -hmm. and I was so scared that people would hear it and they would hate it and they would be like this isn't real Doctor Who or you've made all of these mistakes or who the heck are these people or or just that prejudice would come into it and that they would be awful to Charlie because she's trans or Lois and Holly because they're black and like I I had this weird double thing where on the one hand I was very nervous this is also technically my first professional commission as a producer so I've worked on existing other shows but I've never had something commissioned from me and normally when you start out in drama you start out with like 10 minutes standalone drama on Radio 4 and I started out with a 10 episode Doctor Who audio drama and so I was just like well like I kept saying to my friends like if people hate it like I live in the world and experience misogyny and homophobia and people will just be able to say, well, they gave it to a young woman and it was her first big thing and they shouldn't have done that. Like I'm a very easy scapegoat for if everyone hated it. And that was really scary. And then on the other hand, I was so furiously protective of Charlie and Lois and Holly. And I was kind of like, yeah, well, I don't care if they hate it. I don't care if everyone is awful about it. I'm just going to be like, no, you know what? Like they were amazing and you're wrong. And I had this thing, which I, I said to my partner just before it came out where I was like, to be honest, even if the entire world hates this, if there is one single trans person who listens to this and it means a lot to them that an actual trans woman written by a trans woman is playing a trans character in this show, rather than, I, I love the allusions to the Doctor's transness, but I think it's such a shame that in the TV show throughout Jodie's run, we've never actually had a significant trans character played by a trans actor in the show. And so we can have all of these jokes of like, my references to gender change or a joke or a lie, but in that episode, there are no trans people. And so being like, oh, well, there are all these lovely trans themes, but also trans people still aren't seeing themselves in the show. And I'm so excited for Yasmin Finney. But like when I was pitching the show, when I was making the show, we didn't have that. And I was like, okay, so if we make the show and one person finds it meaningful, one 14 year old writing fan fiction is like, this is the thing. Like, I am not going to go into the controversy about John Barrowman, but like, I grew up in a very religious household in a really unhealthy family. And I, the first time that I encountered the idea of bisexuality was Captain Jack. And I was like, oh, you can kiss like more than one gender. That's cool. I'll figure this out later. And, you know, it's like if one queer kid like listens to the show and it's like, oh shit, like I can just be that. I can do that. And I can be happy and I can have friends and I can be loved and I can be heroic then I didn't care if 10 million people hated it because it would be worth it for that one person. And I made mm -hmm. that decision before the show came out. And then the show came out and people like actually liked it. And people liked it who were my age, like young people liked it, queer people liked it. But also a thing that genuinely surprised me and gave me a lot of hope for the future of the world was a lot of older white men liked it. Like older white men Doctor Who fans, because Doctor Who has always been a safe haven for everyone who considers themselves to be different in some way, whether that's neurodivergence or queerness or class because the doctor loves everyone and the doctor doesn't care if you have a shit job or if you've had a hard time or if you're trans or if you're queer or if you're autistic the doctor's like yeah and some of my friends have 16 tentacles so what are you doing with your life are you kind oh sorry the joys of podcasting <laughs> sorry about that i have the world's most aggressive doorbell and it's like it's it's a problem 
but no yeah worries. basically just in summary I, I realized that like the Doctor Who fandom was there for us and I really genuinely I hoped that queer people and women would like it and it's been amazing seeing people be like this feels like me because I'm like cool it also feels like me so I feel like we're talking to each other and there's a quote from the History Boys which is the best moments in reading are when someone describes something so specific that you had thought unique and special to you a way of thinking or feeling and it feels as if a hand has reached out and taken yours and for me like that's what art is about it's about communicating and it's about expressing things that we find hard to express in any other way and it's about saying I live like this and you live like that and our experiences are fundamentally different but I want to connect with you in some way and that's what matters and this is a silly sci-fi comedy show that's about an alien fetus in a jar but it's also about making people feel like they're not alone mm -hmm. and so I'm glad that it did that for people and it means so much to me every single day but the thing that I was surprised by and also really moved by was seeing how many people who are like this isn't for me and it's not about me and I'm still going to support it and how many people came out of the woodworks to be like yeah like I'm a straight man and I showed this to my daughter and now she knows what the word transgender is and also what the word redaction is and she's very excited and <laughs> having people be like I'm a 57 year old non-binary person and this is my favorite piece of Doctor Who content and having people be very seriously recommending redacted to each other who are like two men on Twitter using full punctuation of semicolons but very sincerely being like you should take this seriously <laughs> and you should check it out and people who are rude about this are wrong and the amount of love and solidarity and community that has come out of it has been really incredible and I did not expect it but I am so grateful to have had it and even if we never make any more even if this is the end of the show and we just did this thing once I still think it was very much a thing worth doing and I am glad to know that. Yeah I often pitch our show I often pitch Wibbly Wobbly as my friend and I talk about Doctor Who episode by episode and we put way too much thought into it <laughs> and as we've done the show longer and longer that pitch feels like not only selling ourselves short but selling both the show and all of the other fans short as well because it's true like this show as silly and ridiculous as it seems means a lot to people and it explores so many avenues it's got such a wide capacity to reflect our own universe back to us in ways that we could have never seen possible and it's been such a joy to experience that all over again with Redacted. Yeah definitely because Doctor Who is it's meant so much to me for so long. I mean, it's so integral to myself that I even got a Doctor Who tattoo. <laughs> yeah, it, uh, it has the quote from Demons of the Punjab. It says, love abides in the face of everything. And I mean, it's also got the spiraling clockwork from the Peter Capaldi intro, which was inspired by fan art. <laughs> so it literally comes full circle or full spiral whatever you want to call it but Doctor Who means so much to me and to so many other people and that's part of why we do this podcast but part of why so many people do their own podcasts and that's again why as we said we're so invested in Redacted because it's about fans making a podcast about this blue box thing <laughs> that they're so interested in and that you know sparks curiosity it's interesting because it's this idea that the doctor people talk about how the doctor ruins people's lives or whatever is like a common thing but I feel like the doctor also makes people's lives better and more enriched even though disaster is always around which honestly the turmoil and the effects of the doctor's actions is actually one of the reasons also that I love Juno Dawson's book, The Good Doctor, which you mentioned it before. It's actually one of my favorite books in the Doctor Who extended universe because it's about the doctor like saving the day or whatever, like doing their thing, disappearing for 600 years and realizing that, oh no, she fucked up. <laughs> I actually got Jodi and Juno to sign that book for me. When I recorded with Jodi, we had Juno in as well. And I got them both to sign my copy, which was like part of the whole reason that I got Juno to be on this podcast and to write for it. Amazing. Because 
I, I love it. I would, whenever I get to the end of that book, it, it like it made me cry a bit when you get to the very, very, very last like little epilogue bit. And there's the story between the two characters talking about like the doctor again, there's a myth and a story, but like from a different perspective at the mm-hmm. end, it's a, it's a good one. Yeah, I love that book. And that book is also one of the reasons why I was so excited about Redacted when it was announced. It's interesting that you say that about The Good Doctor, because one of my favorite Doctor Who novels quite early on growing up was The Infinity Doctors, which is this incredible Doctor Who novel that I really recommend where it's, I can't even remember which Doctor it was because I read it when I was like 15, but I didn't even know about all of the other Doctors. I was just like, oh yeah, there's David Tennant and Chris Brackleston. And what do you mean there was Doctor Who previously? It was in my school library and I borrowed it, but it's like, the Doctor and Gallifrey and it explores like Gallifrey and class and the Time Lords and class and colonization and imperialism and it also talks about the Doctor and the Doctor's family mm-hmm. and it's also a lot about the Doctor and the consequences of the Doctor's actions and the way that the Doctor can inspire faith and hope but also can be quite destructive in the way that they move through the universe and one of the things that's really incredible about it is that the doctor has a wife who was actually murdered and he's been mourning her but he's been secretly mourning her and he hasn't told his student he's mourning her because she was essentially low class and he wasn't supposed to marry her and that was why she was killed and he has this infinity room hidden in his quarters that you can get through to through a mantelpiece which is just full of thousands and thousands and thousands of candles where he's lit a candle for every day that she's been gone just thousands of them And then a thing happens where someone's TARDIS gets tied up in some kind of space event and gets twisted and essentially makes a parallel reality. And the person who was in the TARDIS becomes a god of that reality, but the reality becomes so big, it keeps expanding, that now they are essentially functionally a god and can impact our reality as well. And this god shows it to the Doctor, and in this parallel reality, the Doctor's wife is still alive. And so he goes through into this other world and the gods like yeah I mean you could save the universe you came from but if you let my universe take over then you get her back and he has this conversation with his wife about what he's gonna do and if he's gonna go back to this place where he has experienced pain and prejudice and sadness but also is full of so much life and wonder or if he's gonna hide in this world where he can pretend that none of those bad things ever happened and It's a really good book, but I think about it a lot when I think about The Doctor, because I also think that one of the things that I love about The Doctor is The Doctor has a terrible life. The Doctor is miserable. The Doctor hates themselves a lot. And also The Doctor never, ever lets the suffering and bigotry and discrimination and pain that they see, they never, ever, ever let it stop them being kind and good and they're very much the definition of someone who is kind on purpose and I think for me there was a thing that a reviewer called Alice Stewart said about Redacted which was it's one of my favorite things that anyone's ever written about anything that I've done and even about Doctor Who where he was like who at its best is about people who are forgotten by the world and choose to be kind anyway and yeah yeah it's I mean, I'm adding that book to my to-be-read list immediately. But it, yeah, we have not had this conversation yet but because we have not yet discussed The Beast below. But we very briefly talked about how I... So there's a moment in The Beast Below where... I Amy, remember. Yeah. I've written so, so much fan fiction. I, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I actually really hate that line because I have a very firm belief in so basically just for people whose memories are a bit hazy this is the episode where there's a giant star whale and London is on top of it and eventually at the end when everything's resolved Amy turns to the doctor talking about the star whale but actually talking about the doctor being like all that pain all that suffering and all it did was make it kind and I hate that line because it's never the suffering it's never the trauma it's never how the world pushes at you it's how you live and it's what you choose to do and I'm a very firm believer in the fact that the traumas you experience do not create your personality they reveal it and it's been again so lovely listening to a Doctor Who product that reflects that philosophy rather than the Beast Below philosophy. (laughs) Yeah this also is reminding me of one of my favorite quotes from The Woman Who Fell to Earth which is when Yaz asks whether or not the doctor has family 
and the doctor says that she lost them a long time ago. And then Ryan asks how she copes with that. And she says, I carry them with me, what they would have thought and said and done. I make them a part of who I am. So even though they're gone from the world, they're never gone from me. And that quote really resonates with me, especially because, especially the woman who fell to earth that episode, because my grandmother recently died and Grace dies in that episode. And it's just that whole emotion and sentiment and everything just, yeah, it really resonates with me. And it's one of those things, again, where Doctor Who is a show that makes me feel like it's very relevant to my life. And it's very much something where the lessons that I learn from Doctor Who, from the show, from Redacted, the podcast, from the books that I've read about Doctor Who, from the Big Finish audios that I've listened to, all of them are lessons that I've also learned and internalized and I feel and I vibe with. Yeah, so that's just... (laughs) Yeah, It gets me that you brought up that quote because that was a big moment for me when I fell in love with Jodie was that quote where I was like, there were a couple of moments in that episode. I remember when I first saw the trailer for Jodie's Doctor and I just cried at just the trailer and and then the episode came out and I loved, I loved the woman who fell to earth and there were so many moments. There's a moment when she jumps off the crane where I was like, okay, it's the Doctor. Um, But yeah, that line is absolutely the one where I was like, oh no, this is the Doctor, the Doctor. This is everything the Doctor is in all of Mm -hmm. her grief, but all of her joy and all of her love. And I think also to what you said, it's important to me that the Doctor is angry and the Doctor gets angry about injustice and I think there are so many things that I cannot say about the Doctor Who brand but we won't tell anyone (laughs) I I think that there can be a tendency among anyone who's lived in a group that experiences privilege like I'm white and cis and pretty middle class or at least I have been that like you should just turn the other cheek and why aren't these protesters doing it more peacefully and palatably to me personally and We've seen again and again and again that that's a rhetoric of control and a rhetoric of oppression, not least in the ways that when people do peacefully protest, that hypocrisy is proven, whether we're talking about the murder of Martin Luther King Jr. or the fact that Colin Kaepernick taking a knee wasn't seen as palatable enough. So I do agree that being like, your suffering makes you nice, and that means that you're going to be nice to me, and that means you're going to be palatable to me, and that means that no matter how much you're hurt by the world that you live in and the people who are cruel to you, you're still going to be very palatable and calm and nice and obedient to me is a terrible, terrible message that I'm not particularly interested in. What I am interested in is essentially hope punk storytelling and defiant storytelling and saying, yeah, I live in a world where there's an enormous amount of cruelty and suffering and injustice. And I refuse to believe that that's the human condition. Human beings aren't the disease, capitalism might be. It is not human nature to be cruel. It is not human nature to be bigoted. That is an excuse that powerful people use to do cruelty. I think that human beings very often, almost always want to be kind and they want to love and to be loved. And whether that's romantically or platonically, people want to care about one another and want to be cared about. And, you know, Ursula K. Le Guin, like, the lie of the artist is that suffering is interesting and goodness is boring, whereas there's a terrible banality to evil. It's not interesting. It's much more interesting to me to say, actually, they won because they were kind and they won because they cared and they won because they loved and they didn't win because that was easy for them, because being kind was easy for them. And it didn't mean that they weren't angry because they are. It meant that they were angry and they chose to be kind in this moment. And that was heroic because they had a right to be angry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Now I'm just talking about storytelling. <laughs> no, yeah, absolutely. And I think that's so reflective in Redacted, not only on that sort of big picture scale, but also in this beautifully human, small sort of domestic way. Like, oh my gosh, Cleo and her parents, that storyline hits so close to home for me. Um, and it meant so much to see it reflected back in a way that made me feel heard and made me feel like, oh God, I'm not alone. And this is actually something that a lot of people go through and they can be heroes. And the whole way that 
everyone's supporting each other and we're calling out the shitty boyfriend and all this sort of stuff where it really is the minoritized people supporting each other and making themselves heard and doing it in a way that isn't palatable and isn't a way that's necessarily easy for people to consume but is feeling like coming home to the people who relate to it and Mm -hmm. it's just been a joy so thank you so much for everything that you've done and everything the rest of the team has done as well I think it's very easy for people who aren't in this sort of line of work to think that it's the work of you know one or two people it's always such a team effort and it's Mm -hmm. so beautiful to see everything that's been made Is there anything, any other projects that we might look forward to in the future or things that you're looking forward to working on? If you had the universe at your fingertips, what would you choose and where can we find you? Gosh, okay. I know I threw three questions at you at once. No, no, no. Yeah. It's all good. I, first of all, what I'm working on, what I'm going to be working on, I've signed so many NDAs. There are so many things I wish I could tell you and I can't. But um, <laughs> that's, what, that's what I expected your answer to be. I was like, oh no, Lisa's asking about what she's about to do. And I'm like, I bet she signed NDAs. <laughs> <laughs> I can say that I also do indie podcast things. And there is currently a Buffy style queer story set in the Peak District in the north of England that I narrated using a game called Thirsty Sword Lesbians that is out right now uh, in a show called Realms of Peril and Glory. So if you want to listen to me being really queer with one of the writers of Redacted and just doing a kind of camp queer Buffy fest, then yeah, that's a fun thing. I made a queer hope punk RPG game called Upriver Downriver, which is about sailing on a magical river and also about rebuilding peace in the ruins of war. I'm a voice director for Six to Start, which is the company that makes Zombies Run, which is a wonderful fitness gaming app that is also an interactive radio play. I'm absolutely going to use that going forward. Thank you very much. (laughs) Um, And yeah, in terms of what I would love to work on, gosh, I would love to make more of Redacted. And the decision about whether we make more of Redacted is being made this month. And folk of Doctor Who are really interested in us making more, but BBC Sounds need us to have enough people listening because the BBC is paid for by taxpayers and if they spend taxpayer money on something that taxpayers don't listen to then they are failing to do their duty as a public funded broadcaster so they have to be Mm -hmm. like we are actually serving the audience who's paying for it and so me and Juno and Charlie and Lois and Holly and everyone on the team really 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 want to make more redacted we can only do that if enough people listen and right now we don't quite have enough but we're like very close to a cusp I haven't been given exact numbers but I've been told like it's nearly enough but not quite right now and so there are lots of things that I would love to work on but if you're listening to this what I would really appreciate you doing is just telling a friend to listen to Redacted they don't even have to listen to the audio if they just download the app and click play and then just put it in another room or put it in a drawer that's fine but just please tell your friends tell your bus driver tell your mom tell your cousin please just The word of mouth is the best way to advertise a podcast and get it out there. And we really need people to listen to the show if you would like us to make more. And play it on every unique device you own. (laughs) (laughs) Do that with our podcast too, please. (laughs) Yeah, no, go listen to Redacted. It's Pride Month. (laughs) (laughs) Listen to Redacted for Pride. We have, we have a, actually that's a spoiler. I was going to say something, but never mind. Um, <laughs> it's like something about Ooh. the nature of the redaction, which is a joke I've made a lot to the production team, but I can't tell you because then it would tell you about how the redaction works. And... Okay. We almost got them to crack folks. We almost <laughs> did it. <laughs> almost did it. <laughs> no, but this episode is quite likely to come out. I'm not actually sure if this episode is going to come out before the last episode comes out because we both have to work <laughs> very much i think i can work in one hour twice a week today can you work any other time <laughs> three person production team <laughs> yeah lucia works full-time and i work part-time so that's why i'm the executive producer because i have more time <laughs> yeah Talia does so much for this. I turn up, I'm the charm, I edit some of it, and then I fuck off. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm just here to be sassy and make quips. Like, listen. <laughs> yeah.
but thank you so so much for coming to meet us it has been such a joy to meet you and talk with you we were talking before we started recording that we were afraid that we would use up all our time just chatting before actually <laughs> pressing the button because it's been so fun to talk to you and we could talk about things for hours yeah so just real quick before you go where can people find you on the internet Oh, yes. So people can find me on social media, on Twitter and Instagram at G-E-J Watts, where I will post about all of my various projects. I'm old and I'm still figuring out how to use Instagram, which Charlie finds funny. But yeah, you can find me Instagram and Twitter, like the places where I will be. And I'll be sharing like stuff about the show. I'm going to be sharing a video from recording episode 10 on Sunday, which is is a bit where they made me cry because... (sighs) it makes me cry but yeah you can also find out about any projects that I'm doing podcasts that I'm doing queer stuff yeah we should definitely go follow yeah again thank you so much for coming on it's been such a joy and you heard them folks tell everyone tell everyone listen to redacted as many times as possible because I need a season two and I know you guys need a season two as well and I'm going to be so looking forward to just whatever your next project is, even the stuff that you can't tell us because of NDAs. <laughs> so thank you so much. We hope to see you around. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to the Wibbly Wobbly Timey Wimey podcast. We hope you enjoyed this adventure with us through space and time. You can find us elsewhere on the internet on Twitter, Tumblr, and Instagram at WibblyPod. Follow us for more Wibbly Wobbly content. You can find out more information about us and our content on wibblywobblytimeywimey.net and full transcripts for episodes at wibblywobblytimeywimey.net slash transcripts. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can also send us an email at wibblywobblytimeywimeypod at gmail.com. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and other platforms as it helps other people find us and our content. If you'd like to support us, you can send us a donation at paypal.me slash wibblypod. Special thanks to our editor, Dee, who has been a vital member of the Wibbly Wobbly team. That's all for now. Catch you in the time vortex.